Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about a big change for the Golden Globes, not a good one, and why CNN was able to poach Chris Wallace away from Fox News. After that, we'll be joined by Tina Wynn to talk about the January 6th investigation, Mark Meadows, and the MAGA internet. And finally, Teddy Schleifer will swing by to discuss the campaign to recall San Francisco District Attorney Chesa Boudin, the pissed off techie elites behind it all, and what it says about the progressive moment. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. This is one of our last podcasts before Christmas, I believe. Is that right, Matt? I believe so. I don't think we're going to do one on Christmas Eve, uh, but you never know. Maybe a, a fan campaign will bring us back. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll have the Yule log and then you'll have you and I uh, bantering. Maybe maybe if we start like a Patreon, like you you and I can do a bit. Um, we could do an entire Eve. podcast about how Mariah Carey took over Christmas. <laughs> we can do that. Have you watched uh, Love Actually yet this year? Or is that part of your annual ritual or no? That is part of my never ritual. I am not a, a Love Actually fan. I'm more. I, I do. I do watch the Peanut specials. And actually, speaking of Mariah Carey, there is a hilariously awful Mariah Carey Christmas special that debuted last year. You can find it on Apple TV Plus. It is the best ironic watch of the season because you will marvel at how it exists and why it exists. Amazing. Maybe I can go to uh, McDonald's and get the Mariah Carey meal to watch. Yeah. I think I think Billy Billy Eichner plays an elf in it, if I recall. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Before we get into more pressing issues, yeah, the, the only I watch Love Actually every year. Um, my girlfriend and I call it the the best worst movie because it's like not a good movie necessarily and there's definitely some parts in it that are just dated and misogynistic and terrible but it's still entertaining i don't know it's part of our ritual it's part of our ritual it's better than watching christmas story and home alone for the hundredth time true although i do i do love home alone too the the score to home alone which we watched last weekend is so still so good the john hughes score john williams john, john williams movie, sorry john williams score yeah i always get that confused i always get that confused <laughs> they anyway. are often mistaken for each other uh, it's also funny because now Succession is such a dominant part of our lives, and I forgot that uh, Macaulay Culkin was obviously <laughs> a huge figure for so long. <laughs> you know that Kieran Culkin was also in the movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we figured that out. He's the he's uh, the kid wearing glasses. Um, the the bedwetter, the one they don't give Pepsi to. Good Pepsi sponsorship <laughs> in that movie. Uh, anyway. So, Matt, uh, typically this time of year, the holidays is when we start to talk about big awards movies and nominations. We're going home for the holidays. Some of us, we're going to go see, you know, the prestige movies, maybe in theaters, maybe at home and start to talk about Oscar contenders. And the early bellwether for the Oscars is, of course, the Golden Globes, which is, you know, typically, you know, one of the more fun award shows to watch. It's a little more loose, a little more funny. Uh, less stuffy. Uh, and the Golden Globe nominations came out this week and I didn't even know about it actually this year until you told me about it. And that's usually something I would absolutely pay attention to. And I'm curious why we didn't hear about best motion picture, best actor, best actress. Why did we, Why are we not hearing as much about the Golden Globe 
nominations this year. That is very deliberate. Media has not really covered it this year, and that's because the Golden Globes are, quote-unquote, under fire, as you tend to see in media. They have been called out and canceled this year on NBC. The show is not going to air on NBC because of some ethical issues and diversity issues within the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which it was revealed early this year. Um, It's a 90-odd person organization, had zero black members, um, had made some questionable ethical decisions in paying its members certain fees. And essentially, Hollywood turned on the Golden Globes and decided that this group needed to be punished. NBC, facing a boycott from all of the networks and studios, decided to pull the show for 2022, usually airs the first weekend in January. And... In response to that, the Golden Globe said, you know what? We're going to put out nominations anyways. You don't have to cover them. We're not going to have a show, but we are a arts organization. We are going to do our nominations. And they came out on Monday anyways, and the media just kind of shrugged. There was some coverage, and people you know, did write about them, and NBC did cover them, you know, even though they're not airing the show. But much more muted response this year. Wait, so... If the show's not on TV this year, what, like, you just can't watch it? You can't stream it? It's not anywhere on the internet? There are just no cameras? They have not announced yet. They are not doing an NBC telecast. They are going to present the awards. Um, they're going to do a, a ceremony on uh, the night. I believe it's January 9th, maybe the 6th, either the 6th or the 9th. Um, they are, uh, it's a question as to whether anyone will accept them. Or whether they will, you know, I don't think they'll denounce them. You know, there were some people that came out after the scandal, like Scarlett Johansson and Tom Cruise, who actually gave back their previous Golden Globes and said, I don't want these anymore because of your scandal that you're involved in. I mean, I think that was a a little hypocritical. People have known about the Golden Globes and the Hollywood Foreign Press for decades. It's sort of this ramshackle organization of foreign journalists does not uh, adhere to a lot of the standards that you would see of other awards bodies that you have to be juried into. But now there's this awkward situation where the awards are happening, but Hollywood is sort of pretending this year that they're not into it. Yeah. So that's that's a question I have about this is that the Golden Globes are obviously under a dark public relations cloud. But are people in Hollywood and the industry really not paying attention to who got nominated and who wins this thing? Because, you know, there's there's obviously an inside game and it, sort of a, an effort to campaign to win these big awards. And whether or not the Golden Globes are on TV, if the power of the dog or Belfast or King Richard wins best motion picture, that would still be seen as a cue to other award shows, right? Sure. Am I wrong? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it's not going to have that promotional platform. The beauty of the Golden Globes has always been that, yes, it's an indicator of the Oscars, but it's also a powerful platform on its own because the nominations come out right before the Christmas holiday movie going season. You would always see advertisements saying 10 Golden Globe nominations and it would help, you know, pack theaters over the holidays. You don't have that. This year, And there's evidence that shows that when the show airs in early January, the weekend after the Golden Globes, movies often get a big spike because of the power of that NBC telecast and getting 20 million or so people 
to watch a big promotion for these movies. So Hollywood has essentially killed that promotional platform for these movies for this year because it was not, you know, the organization was not up to standards. And there's an interesting subplot here and that another awards body called the Critics' Choice Awards has tried to muscle in and take some of that thunder away from the Golden Globes. They scheduled their awards on the same night that the Globes typically happen in early January. Um, It's on the CW, not on NBC, um, but they got TBS to also pick up the show. And they are trying to position themselves as like the new Golden Globes. They also award film and TV, and they get stars to come to their award show. The problem is, do you know anything about the Critics' Choice Awards? Most people do not. They have no brand association with it. Like you said, the Globes are known as like this fun party. No one knows what the Critics' Choice Awards is. They are still, they're being hosted by Tay Diggs and Nicole Byer, two, you know, talents, but not well-known names. It's not Tina and Amy. It's not Ricky Gervais. And the question is, is anyone going to care about the Critics' Choice Awards as a replacement for the Golden Globes? I just don't think so. Yeah, I I've heard of the name. I just don't know what it is and I've never seen it, but I'm not. And you would certainly not tune in if you were watching football on the Sunday and you heard it was on. You'd be like, "Uh, what? Whereas people watching football on a Sunday in January, they know the Golden Globes are on after it. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. The suite of movies that are up for awards this year compared to last year um, when you know, it felt it felt like the maybe not the caliber of movies was down, but it was just a there wasn't a cornucopia of movies to choose from last year. It felt like in the way there were in previous years, I guess, because of covid. That was because so many of the movies got pushed or pulled from the schedule because of covid. I mean, there were there were so few movies. The fact that Nomadland won Best Picture, a movie I enjoyed and I thought it was great, but it definitely benefited from the lack of movies. Look at movies this year. You know, West Side Story has a ton of Globe nominations, and that's a movie that was supposed to come out last Christmas, and it got pushed to this year, so now it's in contention this year, and will probably end up winning the Best Picture Comedy or Musical Globe, and will be a frontrunner for Oscars, but that was a movie that was supposed to compete last year. There's a number of those types of movies. It's, it's actually a pretty crowded field this year, even though movie theater attendance is still way down. There have been a lot more movies in theaters this year and on streaming platforms, um, and it's pretty competitive. So yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. What nominations jumped out at you from the Golden Globes? One of them to me was Dune, like this big action sci-fi movie, got nominated for Best Picture. Obviously, Denise Villeneuve is, you know, a serious director, and this isn't just a dumb popcorn flick, but I can't remember the last time a, a huge action movie won Best Picture, but what jumped out to you? Yeah, I, th- I think Dune is an interesting one. I think the fact that the Adam McKay movie, Don't Look Up, which is a kind of critique on the media and climate change coverage, uh, that movie got a ton of nominations, and the critics actually don't like that movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. I like Adam McKay movies. Um, But the critics don't like that. And both at the Critics' Choice and at the uh, Golden Globes, it got a bunch of nominations. So that movie seems to be kind of defying the critics in in terms of awards buzz. It'll be on Netflix over the holidays. The Aaron Sorkin movie um, about Lucy and Desi Arnaz is also on Amazon over the holidays. I really enjoyed that one. It got a bunch of Globe noms, not picture, but it got 
Uh, Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem, Aaron Sorkin, the writer-director, got a screenplay. That one, I think, has um, some good momentum going into the holidays. But I think the frontrunner really right now for Best Picture is probably West Side Story. Have you seen it yet? I have not. And it did not do well in its first weekend in theaters, which um, is not too surprising. You know, it's a, for an older audience. And those are exactly the people that are not going to theaters, as we've discussed on this podcast. Um, I think it will probably play over the holidays, but it's not going to be a, a hit or make money. Um, but I think it will get a ton of nominations and maybe even win. Um, Belfast is another one, Kenneth Branagh's movie about his up, upbringing in Ireland. And I, I have seen that. It's very good. Um, but it is a small, small movie. Um, it's one of those where people who watch the Oscars it, and they're, they're going to be like, what? What is that? Like, I've never heard of that. That is, this is also placing me in my, uh, in the snob category, but uh, in, in Puck's first annual guide to mirth and merriment, our list of what to buy, what to read, what to watch this holiday coming out soon. Uh, Belfast is my movie that I'm most excited to see. Are you into Van Morrison? Not really. I just love Brana and I'm obsessed with Northern Ireland and, and the history of the troubles and that sort of thing. Um, you like Van, Van Morrison is like the soundtrack and, if you're into uh, Northern Ireland politics, this is the movie for you. I, I am. Trust me, I am. I know way too much. Also, Irish Irish accents. Great Irish accents. Uh, I wish I could do one right now. But yeah, maybe on the Patreon, um, I'll do a little Irish review of, of Belfast. You have a Patreon? I'm kidding. I meant that was a joke about our, our fake puck patreon that you and i are going to oh, do for I christmas I, i'm not in on that joke yet <laughs> uh you do well uh, on that you what about a cameo do you do cameos for the holidays i got approached by cameo i could see that because you're on you know your video yeah um and there are there are you know gen z fans of my show i just don't know where that places me in terms of credibility as a journalist <laughs> if i'm doing cameos but i don't know what the rules what are are, other, are there other prominent journalists that do cameos uh, Sean, Sean Spicer, he's a great journalist. He does cameos. Uh, is there? Can I get like a Ryan Lizza cameo if you uh, you know if you reach out? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I need to look up what journalists are on there. I'm sure there's like some like Fox News people on there. I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Speaking of smaller screens and smaller smaller screens, TV and mobile. There was a big media story this week that Chris Wallace, who has been a reporter, anchor, and Sunday show anchor at Fox News for as long as I can remember, uh, the son of Mike Wallace, um, esteemed political journalist, is leaving Fox to join CNN Plus, which is CNN's third attempt at streaming over the last 15 years. But they're putting lots of money into this. They're hiring big name talent. You know, I think this says one thing that's pretty obvious about Fox, which is that whatever you think of Chris Wallace and uh, there are critics out there in part because of how he handled the 2020 debates between Trump and Biden, which went off the rails and Wallace kind of let Trump spew misinformation for like 20 straight minutes on national TV. But, <laughs> you know, him and Brett Baer, there are some journalists at Fox News who are uncomfortable with the increasing direction of the network into just pure propaganda. Um, and it was clear that Wallace didn't feel comfortable there anymore and he's joining CNN plus but what do you what do you make of this move and also like what what does this say about CNN plus like we've talked about this before but what is CNN plus supposed to be compared to CNN on cable well that's the big question because that 
is what they see as the future of CNN. And they have to do what a lot of these legacy companies are doing, balancing the linear channel with the future of what the streaming platform is going to be. And I think that it signals a couple things. First, it signals that Jeff Zucker, the head of CNN, is willing to spend to boost that streaming channel. We know he's gone after a couple of other people and bringing in a very prominent journalist. Yes, he is in his 70s. And yes, he was at the end of his contract. So it's not like it's, you know, hiring Hannity or one of the huge stars of Fox News. But Chris Wallace is a name and he is the straight news face of Fox News. I also think it's signaling that there is going to be a shift away from what has defined CNN over the past five years, which is this anti-Trump kind of resistance TV calling out the, you know, the anti-democratic forces, all of that stuff that has really defined CNN, especially in prime time in the U.S. I think they're going to pull back from that a little bit. And this may be the venue. Maybe CNN becomes that where it's the place you go that is more like CNN internationally. I know the new regime that is coming in and will own CNN at Warner Media. Um, with uh, the Warner Brothers Discovery deal, that new leadership really wants this CNN international product to have some greater influence on the American product. And how that manifests itself is to be seen, because I still think that Americans like programs in prime time, and they like that talk radio format where there's a host with others on there that there's a perspective. I just don't think it will be this brand of kind of resistance TV that we've seen. One of my biggest preoccupations in journalism is that the decision makers, the journalists themselves, frequently don't think enough about what the audience wants and how can we fit into the lives of the news consumer out there. And decisions are, are often made in, in you know executive suites in, in Washington, New York. And so my question is, who is the person that is going to subscribe and pay for CNN Plus but not watch CNN on TV or vice versa. I mean, like who, like what are, who are they programming for here? Just people who care about news, but don't have cable subscriptions. Well, it's a, it's a younger audience, obviously, because the streaming audience is younger, but I think what the ownership of CNN sees is it's a differentiator. HBO max is the streaming service of Warner media. They are spending billions of dollars to program that service. And CNN could be a significant differentiator if it is successfully integrated into the HBO Max experience. News is something that Netflix does not have, that Disney Plus has not really incorporated ABC News into. Hulu has some of that stuff. But if you do a great job creating a streaming brand for CNN, that could either be a standalone product or more likely be integrated into HBO Max to create a super brand where you either get it with HBO Max for free, you pay an incremental upcharge, and you're getting both the never court or the, the never subscribers to cable who want news and like being able to access CNN when there's a big story and just don't have a cable subscription or people who are becoming cord cutters. You know, the CNN audience is so old and cable news in general is getting older and older because younger people are cutting the cord. And this is where they see the audience going. And I think if they can successfully transition them into the streaming product, that's going to be a big differentiator for them. But in terms of a streaming product, if you want CNN, shouldn't they just have an over-the-top offering that is CNN that you can just pay for? 
Well, there are issues with that, with the carriage deals that they have. You know, the cable bundle is still the revenue driver for all of these companies. The fees they get are just astronomical. And CNN is a must carry. You know, what cable offering is not going to offer CNN? They're going to offer it for, like you said on the show, the seven times a year when CNN is indispensable, even if you don't watch Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper. So they're not going to, you know, they're not going to sacrifice that revenue, but they have to come up with stuff that can live on CNN Plus that will be additive, interesting. I think they'll probably put documentaries there. CNN's done a great job producing documentaries lately. I think they'll probably put additional shows from their star anchors. They'll bring people over there like Chris Wallace and others to do shows primarily for CNN Plus, but then they will appear on CNN periodically. Like you put Chris Wallace into a debate situation or have him appear on Sunday shows occasionally. You're going to see a lot of pushing on CNN towards the streaming product. You're already seeing that on Fox where they are plugging the crap out of Fox Nation, which is the Fox attempt at a streaming service. And they have gone kind of, they have, they are using Fox nation as like the crazy town machine, <laughs> you know, the stuff that's like so outrageous and extreme that it doesn't fit on Fox news. They are servicing the super fans of Fox by putting like the Tucker Carlson Patriot purge documentary there. And, you know, uh, what was that duo? Uh, the Trump fans, the African-American women, uh, Diamond oh, and Silk. Diamond Remember and Diamond Silk, and yeah. Silk? They were on Fox Nation for a bit. Like they're just putting stuff there that only the Fox super fans like and would be willing to 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 pay extra for. Uh, I'm not sure CNN will do that, but but CNN Plus will have a brand. I just don't know. I don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. Yeah, and and you mentioned documentaries too. I, like they have a catalog of. Anthony Bourdain shows. They have the Stanley Tucci show. Love that show. Searching for Italy. Yeah, it's great. And then they just announced, as of this taping, uh, Eva Longoria is coming to CNN Plus to do a miniseries called Searching for Mexico, where she's going to uh, travel across the country and explore cuisines and, and culture. Um, See, and that's the kind of stuff that can live on HBO Max. I mean, I watched the Stanley Tucci show, not on CNN, but on HBO Max. And if there was a CNN-branded tile cnn plus within hbo max that would absolutely replicate the disney format in streaming where they have essentially brought together their brands and if you want to watch nature stuff or documentaries you click on nat geo uh and if you know if, in the future if you click if you're on hbo max and you want news or you want documentaries maybe you'll click on cnn plus well matt it was uh it was good to talk about cnn this week with you and not have to talk about chris cuomo so um that's a good way to go into the holidays excellent <laughs> All right, Matt. See you next time. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Coming up, I talked to Tina Wynn about Mark Meadows, the former White House chief of staff who may now be charged with contempt of Congress. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. Our scoops and analysis will help you understand the most important stuff happening today. And when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our great team, empowering us to do the work that really matters to grow our business and to pave a path for a new media model. So check us out at puck.news. Welcome back to the powers that be. Joining me now is Tina Nguyen. Um, 
Tina, I want to talk to you about Mark Meadows. The Democratic-controlled House voted this week to recommend that the DOJ pursue criminal charges against former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows for failing to cooperate with the select committee that's investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was a party line vote with the exception of two Republicans who voted with Democrats. Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, uh, both never Trump Republicans who are on the select committee. Uh, Tina, I want to ask you about Meadows. He was initially going to cooperate with this investigation (laughs) and then decided not to. Why is that? Is it because Trump got a bug in his ear and was like, don't do this? Be my Tom and go to jail? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. It's so... No one really knows. He's like... Mark Meadows... For all the time that I've covered him, he seems to want to go back and forth between being kind of respectable and being super, super Trumpy. I mean, remember how a couple weeks ago he wrote in his book that Trump got COVID and didn't tell anyone before the debate? And then Trump said it was fake news. And then Meadows went on Newsmax and said, yeah, that was fake news in the book that I wrote. <laughs> his own book. His own book. Oh, my God. And... Yeah, like, I think he like he gave Congress enough to work with, but then backed away from it. But the things that he gave Congress are kind of incriminating and super damning and at the very least make Fox News hosts look real stupid. And Don Jr. and pretty much anyone who texted him that day saying, please get these crazy people out of the Capitol. Well, that's that's what I want to ask you about, because just to rewind a little bit, Steve Bannon also declined to cooperate with the January 6th committee. He was held in contempt by Congress and the Justice Department basically affirmed that. Meadows had a more plausible claim to executive privilege because he did work in the White House in the West Wing as Trump's chief of staff when all this stuff was going down. But he was cooperating for a while, so it sort of seemed like he waived that privilege and gave the committee a bunch of documents (laughs) from that day. And so... You know, a variety of slide decks came out and a bunch of text messages came out. And Tina, what did they what did they say from January 6th? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) There are so many I have to recall correctly. So there are a lot of texts, some of them coming from Republican colleagues who were more like allied with Trump saying, "Okay." please get these guys out of the Capitol. Please tell Trump to tell the protesters to go home and make a really firm statement saying going home, please go home. Then there were these other texts from other members of Congress saying, hey, can you get Mike Pence to declare that the electors uh, chosen in XYZ states are actually unconstitutional? And now Pence doesn't have to gavel Biden in his president. And they were sort of going off this legal theory that had been floating around, a really novel, crazy one that was put forth by everyone from actual law professors at Chapman University to internet people who used to run video game websites, basically saying that there is some sort of weird legal magic that can do if you do this thing in the Constitution and another thing in the Constitution. Therefore, he now has, you know, magic powers to declare that Biden actually isn't president. And they were really, really hoping that Pence could do that. Pence obviously didn't do that. But the fact that Jim Jordan, I think it was Jim Jordan and someone else was trying to lobby Meadows to do it. 
weirdly enough, before I hopped on the call here and the podcast, I was reading some piece in The Federalist saying that Adam Schiff had actually cut off half of Jim Jordan's message to Mark Meadows and only showed the portion that said, hey, get Mike Pence to um, declare the election invalid. But then you didn't have all this other stuff at the bottom of it that also had some sort of other. I don't know. It's really confusing. But the general gist is people were telling Mark Meadows either to call the election illegitimate or get everyone to get out of the Capitol and end the drama of the insurrection. And Meadows, I assume, I guess, didn't do either of those things. Yeah. And so there's there's these texts are fascinating. And I, I, I want to say for the audience, just to explain Mark Meadows' background, he was a member of the Freedom Caucus in the House for many years before becoming Trump's chief of staff. And that was a group of congressmen and women who were very right wing before Trump were pretty staunchly, you know, probably more in the Tea Party camp, I would say, you know, anti John Boehner during the Obama years, et cetera, but also like really fucking thirsty. Like these people were always at CPAC and giving out their numbers to reporters and everyone. They love being on TV. Like a lot of people around Donald Trump, they were the sort of like sideshow act at the circus who finally got in the main ring and had all the attention and fame that they always craved. And it's kind of sad and thirsty. Anyway, the reason. Everyone had Mark Meadows number was that. Yeah, he had every reporter on the Hill knew Mark Meadows and could text him. And like Don Jr. was texting him saying, yo, man, like we got to stop these rioters. And it's important to point this out. Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity were all and Brian Kilmeade were all texting Mark Meadows, these people who go on Fox now and pretend that it wasn't dangerous, that it wasn't a coup or an insurrection, that the the liberals are making all this stuff up. Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Brian Kilmeade were all texting Mark Meadows saying, the president needs to tell these people to go home. It's hurting all of us. He's destroying his legacy. You're destroying everything you've accomplished. Sean Hannity texted, quote, can he make a statement? Ask people to leave the Capitol. Don Jr., the president's son <laughs> texted, presumably because I guess Trump doesn't text himself, texted Mark Meadows telling him to stop. Anyway, and Meadows, it's unclear whether Meadows, which ones Meadows responded to and which ones he didn't. But it signaled when these texts were read aloud by Liz Cheney in the January 6th committee that the all of these people in the Republican universe understood and knew that Trump had power over these people, whether he like instigated this or not, that they thought he could stop it. And that's just like very, that's extremely telling because now January 6th is kind of recast as this not that bad moment uh, by Fox News. And honestly, it's deliberate. It's easy to do that if you just recast everyone who walked into the building as patriots, which has been the overwhelming narrative, I think, ever since like Ever since the vote that was taken after the insurrection, when Matt Gates went and gave a speech, literally after everyone was freaking out, shaken, coming back to the floor to cast their votes, he goes, I think a lot of Antifa members were in that crowd. That's when you started seeing all these counter narratives pop up saying, either we pretend this wasn't a really big deal and these were just patriots who were being tourists and got a little overwhelmed and I can't believe you're arresting them all, 
to there was definitely some sort of FBI slash Antifa plot to make MAGA people look bad. So I guess what you're seeing right now where you have a committee trying to actually figure out what happened during that day and an entire Republican Party that's hellbent on making sure that their role does not see the light of day or at least is kind of mitigated. It's going to be harder once these texts come out. But I also imagine that's why Mark Meadows didn't do something as dramatic as actually go in front of Congress, testify, do a big public whatever. Yeah, I mean, I I believe a contempt of, of Congress sentence is you serve up to a year in prison, you get fined like $100,000. Maybe he's like, that's the price to pay to remain Donald Trump's butt boy. I will say this. One reason I like your reporting is unlike myself and a lot of my peers who cover politics, we came up covering the Republican Party mostly through its like official corridors, the RNC, state party chairman, you know, we had sources on the Hill, sources in White Houses, et cetera, lobbyists. And you came up sort of like understanding the outside the beltway activisty side of the conservative movement that now runs the Republican Party. And so on the Internet right now, in the like swampy corners of the Internet, like what are people saying about the January 6th investigation? Here's my impression of the MAGA internet right now. It's all a psyops. It's all the liberals fault. It's all Biden just trying to do a big false flag investigation. Uh, you know, also Biden is ruining the country. Wokeism, Antifa. It's a big screaming pile of that. I wish I could be a little bit more coherent, but if there was a way to kind of make sense of the madness, MAGA Internet is really good at flooding the zone with a lot of different explanations to really anodyne things at once. Like, do you remember in November of last year when people were trying to come up with 800 different ways to explain why Biden won in a couple of states and they ranged from things like mail-in ballot fraud to China kind of came in and started switching all the votes inside the Dominion machines to we saw these guys taking boxes of, you know, votes. Why did the basement flood in Atlanta, Georgia, when they were counting votes in Megham County? You know what's weird? I went to um, the McDonald Observatory the other night, and it's this beautiful observatory in near Fort Davis, Texas, one of the darkest regions in the country. And I was sitting at this stargazing party, which is this cute little thing. A guide comes and shows you where all the different planets are in the sky. And she pointed out that, like, even though that there are known constellations that the international community has sort of adapted, then they're based on Greek mythology. All these other cultures were trying to find their own ways to explain the stars. And so they came up with, I don't know, the Southern Cross in Aborigine culture, they thought it was a great emu. The Chinese saw Sagittarius and thought that was a dragon. We look at something as simple as Biden won these many votes and therefore he won the election, therefore he is president. MAGA internet, specifically MAGA internet, maybe the Republican Party as a whole, but MAGA internet, which kind of sets the agenda for the party these days, they look at They look at this result. It doesn't match what they want to see. And they'll come up with 80 billion explanations for it. 
at some point I can recap to you the entire time I went to the Mike Lindell cyber symposium. And that was just a peak moment of denialism going haywire. So you take you take something that happened, you take a fact, you take evidence and you respond to it with a like literal fire hose of just a hundred random things that stoke the Republican base. And there's enough stuff in that in that avalanche of like nonsense for people to just grab onto one or two things. And then that's why you turn around and see when like the Daily Show goes to like a Trump rally and they interview Trump supporters and they're like, what do you think about the election? Like, well, I saw on Facebook or I saw or I heard on Fox or I heard from my friend that it was because of this voting machine thing or because of, you know, Hunter Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Sharpies. One voting location in Arizona that used Sharpies instead of ballpoint pens, which made the machine count the vote for Biden instead of Trump. Yeah, no, it's a, it's just a fog of, of bad information. And, you know, like it or not, for the right, it, it works at least to keep their troops in line. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about in terms of real world outcomes of this is and going back to the house is what is reality, Peter? <laughs> I don't I don't know. Uh, it's definitely Twitter, though, right? It's definitely Twitter. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, they've all been saying in recent days that if Republicans take back the House next year, which, you know, if the rules of history apply, will happen, um, that Kevin McCarthy, the leader of the House, Republican caucus, doesn't have the votes to be Speaker. And someone of their ilk, you know, the more... MAGA, stop the steal type, Marjorie Taylor Greene lunatic. That's the beating heart of the Republican Party and the Republican caucus. And someone like that will have to become House Speaker. Um, Is that true or are they just like blustering for attention? If that's true, then oh my Jesus Christ. But it seems this is it seems it seems plausible, though, because, again, like they have a point. Mm-hmm. The beating heart of the Republican Party is really with the kind of rabid MAGA base voter. The House of Representatives has always represented the id of the Republican base. And maybe, you know, maybe maybe enough time has passed since Trump left where Kevin McCarthy will become speaker and he'll sort of have to corral the more like outspoken people on his right in his caucus and he'll still be speaker or Maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene is right. And like in 2020, we're going to see more Republicans like her winning more primaries and coming into the caucus. And maybe McCarthy won't have the votes. And the Speaker of the House will be someone like Matt Gates or Paul Gosar or, you know, whoever else, Jim Jordan. That's the thing, though, because that would predict like even if Republicans take the House, does that mean that the people who take the House end up being QAnon spouting MAGA candidates or will they just be kind of like down the line Glenn Youngkin-esque candidates who don't particularly come into the House saying the election was stolen or whatever. The makeup of whoever wins these seats overall I think will determine whether Marjorie Taylor Greene's prediction bears out. And if it does bear out and I don't know, Red Pill 87 or whatever becomes the next congressman from New Jersey (laughs) or whatever, then we can revisit this conversation. But if we do, we're also going to be in the territory of maybe they can elect Donald Trump to be Speaker of the House, because that's a theory that's been floating around for a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Trump would rather run his media company than the Speaker of the House. But what if he could own Biden? What if he could own Joe Biden on a regular basis? Come on, Peter. Uh, still a president, man. The president's got more power than the Speaker. Sorry. I know you Pelosi stands out there disagree, but that's that's just my take. I, don't, I just think Trump is happier being someone who doesn't have to pay attention to details uh, and, you know, getting legislation through or blocking legislation or managing a caucus doesn't seem like his cup of tea. Anyway, Tina, thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time. You too. I'm so sorry I broke your brain. <laughs> yeah, I, I need to go. Uh, I need to go work out and just not look at a screen for a few minutes. <laughs> Get away from me. Get away from everything I say. <laughs> Coming up, Teddy Schleifer will be here to talk about San Francisco's controversial district attorney and what the campaign to recall him from office says about Democratic politics nationwide. Hey, it's me, Peter Hamby. Along with my colleagues, I want to invite you to check out Puck.News for the inside story about what's really going on in our culture. It's only $100 a year, which is a steal. If you need a present for your smartest coworker, consider buying them a subscription. Check us out at puck.news. Welcome back to the powers that be. Joining me is my colleague, Teddy Schleifer, who covers all things money, all things philanthropy, all things. Basically, you cover billionaires. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the shorthand. That beat has a lot of tendrils and politics is certainly a big one. You have... Such a good piece up right now. It's like one of those stories you're like, I wish I had written this, but unlike you, I don't live in San Francisco, but I have friends who do live in Oakland and I hear about this stuff about the recall of the San Francisco district attorney. Chesa, say it for us. Chesa Boudin. Um, folks may know the last name. Um, he's the son of uh, somewhat famous kind of weather underground radicals. Uh, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, if you uh, lived through um, kind of the, the more radical days that preceded these radical days. He's a, he's a famous family. There are books about his family. Um, I feel like the younger set, myself included, just think of, oh, it's Chesa. Of course, Chesa. But there's a there's a long line of of previous Chases not named Chesa, but named Boudin. Correct. And, and, and Boudin, Chesa, was also helped, raised by Bill Ayers, too. Right. Right. So 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 Chase's parents um, are, are incarcerated. His, his dad just got out, uh, was granted clemency by none other than Andrew Cuomo uh, earlier this year. But uh, <laughs> yes, uh, Bill Ayers, uh, of course, Barack Obama's father, um, also Chase's <laughs> father. Yes, I forgot that Bill Ayers was Barack Obama's dad and Bernie Sanders dad. And Huma Abedin's dad. It's crazy. This guy's. Yeah. <laughs> this guy is the Wilt Chamberlain of radical politics. He's, he's gotten around. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you live in Cincinnati or Richmond, Virginia or Manhattan Beach, California, you're like, why do I care about a district attorney recall race in San Francisco starring a guy named Chesa. But this this story is part of a larger story about what's happening in democratic politics right now. Angles of the story are playing out in Philadelphia, in Minneapolis, here in Los Angeles, where I am, where you have a lot of wealthy liberals, a lot of wealthy tech people in San Francisco's case, who are really worried about the state of crime, drug abuse, and just the, the sort of shabby nature of our cities in their minds. And 
over the course of the last few years, we've seen a lot of progressive district attorneys come into power in various cities around the country, and they have a certain set of ideas about incarceration, about sentencing, and about how the police should behave uh, within these communities. And so Chesa, and you you will tell this better than I will, uh, Teddy, but like he he's one of these DAs, and we have seen the Democratic establishment kind of clash here in San Francisco over what they see as, you know, I think Mayor London Breed said this week that the city's gone to shit. <laughs> yeah, she said she's sick, sick of all the bullshit. Is it was or end? I want to end of all, all of the bullshit. Yes. Yes. Today. And so London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, is a black woman who's saying she's fed up with the crime. She's going to send police into the tenderloin, et cetera. But explain where Chesa fits into this constellation. Like, why is he the center of this fight? And is he going to be removed from office because he's too weak on crime and drugs, et cetera, et cetera? So one of the few areas uh, that Democrats and Republicans, uh, at least elites, Democratic and Republican elites came around on over the last five years was that the criminal justice system was broken. You know, you saw. Uh, this has been a big talking point of Rand Paul. Even, you know, Trump had some kind of some sympathies to some elements of kind of the criminal justice reform movement. Um, and it was very in vogue in corporate America, which, which we can talk about in a minute. But even before George Floyd, um, this has been a building consensus. So Chesa is elected in 2019 before, you know, George Floyd's murder, before Black Lives Matter. It's a squeaker election. We, we, I won't bore you with all kind of the San Francisco process elements there, but he wins in 2019. And he did not lie to voters about what he represented. Uh, he at the time was talking about how the system was screwed up and that he was untethered to old thinking. Chesa is 41 years old, as we talked about a moment ago. He's an extraordinary story, right? Obviously, not every day that you have a district attorney whose parents are in jail for decades. And that has informed his entire life. He's been talking about criminal justice issues since he was a teenager. San Francisco knew what they were getting when they elected him. So almost immediately, Chase comes into office in late 2019. So there's a couple of months before COVID. And he pretty much becomes America's most controversial DA, uh, major major city DA overnight. Um, you know, he just really de-emphasizes prosecution, at least, of nonviolent offenders. Um, you know, prosecutors have a lot of discretion um, over which laws they actually enforce, whether that's county prosecutors, federal prosecutors. So Chesa, uh, pre-COVID, is a, a national model. Now, certainly that is he's proven to be uh, an experiment, right, for, for folks who want uh, to see a, a radically different criminal justice system, which is what lots of pe- elites said they wanted, right? You know, I mean, to some extent, he is maybe pushing it a little bit past what what elites said they wanted. But if you want to, if you believe the system was screwed up and you want to try something different, here you go. So what's happened over the last year, though, is there has been this backlash. Obviously, COVID is the complicating factor. COVID happens a couple months into Chase's tenure. Lots of the national crime wave that we've seen, prosecutors attribute not to any policies that they've put in place. And look, there's crime is up basically across the nation in cities that have Chase Boudin, cities that don't have Chase Boudin. Like, across, you know, crime is way up in Oakland. They have a much more conventional prosecutor than Chase. So this is a complicated story. But what's happened is lots of Chase critics who in San Francisco, the elite critics are coming 
predominantly or at least disproportionately from the tech sector, they're pissed. And so they've helped finance this recall uh, of the DA, which qualified uh, last month. It's going to be in June. Lots of people think he could lose in which would be in, in, you know, this would be certainly probably exaggerated. But I think in terms of the narrative, which, you know, wrongly or rightly does matter, the narrative would be. Wow, the libs went too far. Here's the backlash. Um, to some extent, that's true. Um, to some extent, uh, maybe this is a chase a specific story. And are the libs in question here? Like, in other words, the people who voted him into office, was it kind of like DSA Bernie activist types? Was it like BLM people? I know this is before George Floyd. Or was it just sort of, you know, part after after 2018, just that progressive moment where everyone just sort of wanted to vote for the most progressive person on the ballot. Chaser was, you know, I, I forget if Bernie endorsed him, but uh, Chaser endorsed Bernie. Um, you know, it was because his support came from uh, from the left. I wonder if he would even, you know, dispute the word radical. I mean, not in a not in a pejorative sense, but like he was obviously proposing a radical change and fellow quote unquote radicals uh, flocked to him. I mean, Chase's main opposition actually didn't even come from tech because his tech hasn't really cared about San Francisco politics really ever until recently. Uh, the, the main uh, main opponent of Chase was the police union. Um, which spent a lot of money to try and elect somebody else. And tech was sort of asleep at the wheel. And now that their cars are being broken into and their homes are being invaded, they, they've woken up. You know, there's a quote in my story from someone who's very active in this world who says, uh, you know, tech's flaws, they only want to solve global problems. No one wants to spend time on local trashy problems. Like they want to solve world hunger. They want to solve climate change. Uh, now you're stepping in shit and your windows are getting smashed in. Suddenly they care. And Peter, that reminded me of your, of your kind of Gavin piece from... Uh, earlier this year just about I forget what it is about a transient taking a shit on your front yard yeah nothing changes your politics like a transient taking a shit in your front yard which was which was told to me by so probably the anti-chasa um, LA County Sheriff Alex Villanueva who was also elected a few years ago as a Democrat um, but has really pivoted and leaned into the idea that these DAs are too liberal that you know, even Democrats care about civil society and picking up trash and homelessness, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, to punctuate that, you know, he is is helping lead a recall against the Los Angeles County District Attorney, George Gascon, who used to live in the Bay Area, who was right, elected used to, this, used to be the San Francisco District Attorney. Right. Correct. And he was elected in 2019 with a lot of Bay Area money that flowed down here. And he's he's done a lot of of. Um, similar things that Chesa has done or is, is at least trying to ending cash bail, ending the death penalty, ending life without parole. You know, he won't prosecute anyone younger than 18 as an adult. He came into he came under a lot of fire recently because, you know, he pardoned someone who was sentenced to prison for 50 years for murder. And he let him out of prison after five or six years. And so he he's also catching a lot of flack because, uh, you know, the crime and homelessness stuff that's afflicting the Bay Area is also happening down here in Los Angeles. Um, and so but a question I have, though, is like, are big names getting involved in this race? Like, are there are there tech moguls that our audience will know that are jumping in and funding him or funding the recall? I mean, what 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 kinds of people are putting money into this race? So the caveat, it's, it's still early. I mean, it's six months away, but this is going to be a very expensive district attorney race, probably 10 million bucks, which is, you know, 
more than you typically see for a countywide office in America's 66th biggest county. Um, obviously, it's more than some congressional races. You know, this is, this is going to be a thing. And I think it's going to be a thing largely because lots of donors, hyper aware of the, the narrative, you know, probably are concerned that they, they want they want to win. They, they, they want to. This is going to be a statement election for for both sides. Right. Um, and nothing attracts kind of donors, especially nationally, like using using a race to uh, you know affirm the narrative they want to tell. So, so the folks involved that, that people would recognize, David Sachs is a kind of a well-known conservative provocateur donor, uh, kind of a, a disciple or, or sidekick at times to Peter Thiel. Sachs has contributed $75,000, which I know this doesn't sound like a lot of money on the national stage, but, but, but maybe add a zero to kind of get a sense of how that could impact a, a San Francisco race. Um, so David Sachs is a big proponent of the recall. The, the, the biggest supporter of Chase is actually also from tech, which is somewhat surprising for or complicating for the narrative that people want to tell. A guy named Chris Larson, who is a kind of a crypto billionaire. Uh, he's given $100,000 to Chesa. Uh, this is, we're definitely in the early innings. Like, I'm not going to say that tech money is is overflowing this race, but it's probably going to happen uh, soon because lots of people, you know, these people live in San Francisco. They're watching what's happening and people want to use this race to weigh in on kind of the grand Silicon Valley experiment. Yeah. And I think if you if you don't listen to every episode of the powers that be, uh, one you're doing it wrong. But two, Teddy and I had a conversation a few weeks back about Silicon Valley money and how some of that's being steered away from conventional politics and campaigns into philanthropy, etc. But you did say something which is that tech Bay Area money they feel that national politics feels kind of remote and and useless. And so to me, it's actually not surprising that they're going to start turning their attention to to local issues because, and even in California, and this was a thing in the recall, there are a lot of discrete conflicts in LA, in San Francisco and Oakland, in the red counties versus the blue counties, et cetera. But the state as a whole is just really always going to be Democrat at this point. And the more interesting political fights are the ones happening in San Francisco right now, that you're talking about here in Venice, in Venice, where I live, they are trying to recall a city councilman, Mike Bonin, because he's another progressive who, you know, a lot of the wealthy homeowners on the West side of Los Angeles, like don't like the homelessness and the crime and the drug use that's happening in their backyards. I was in LA over the weekend. I saw these Bonin signs. I had to look, I had to look them up. I never heard of the guy. Yeah, exactly. But, and you wouldn't have, if you, again, if you live in Texas or Ohio or Virginia, but they do, they are emblematic of, these Democrat on Democrat, progressive on progressive fights going on right now where you have kind of more progressive social justice voices against people who think they go too far. And and also Democrats worry that this, this is also how this plays into the national political story. The story about the chaser recall is on Fox News. Like anytime you see a robbery in broad daylight, a smash and grab robbery that's caught on closed circuit television, that stuff finds its way onto Fox, onto Breitbart, onto Steve Bannon's podcast, and conservatives say, this is the liberal experiment gone wrong. This is Joe Biden's America, et cetera, et cetera. Trump did that, obviously, throughout 2020, talking about crime. But like, this is why this stuff is important. These granular local races can get seized upon and turned into big national stories very quickly. Right. And the reality is, I mean, just to set some kind of facts here, crime is actually not up in San Francisco. Major crimes uh, are down about 20 percent. But what there has been a surge of is like viral crime. 
Like, you know, there's been a surge of you see a smash and grab. And it's like I love whenever you see these kind of pretty gory or, or scary looking incidents and people's immediate impulses. Let's film it and get clout on the Internet. It's not like, you know, like the, the first the, the Cajun of easy, you know, uh, killing today what would happen. People would just be tweeting about it and no one called. No one calls 911. Look, that, that's sort of the 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 nature of kind of how arguments are formed is people, you know, people say here, oh, we feel unsafe and they don't trust the data. And you probe like, well, why do you feel unsafe? And it's like it's all about people's sort of perceptions of the, the crime that they think is happening. I mean, folks do have experience with crime and some crimes like burglaries and auto thefts are indeed up even by the city's data. But a lot of this, well, I mean, a lot of politics is about perception, right? It's about is the economy feel like it's doing well? You know, no one's saying, oh, well, GDP data says blah, blah, blah. So, so there's definitely been a surge in viral crime to the point you made a second ago about the, the national narrative here. San Francisco politics is there's no there's no real Republican politics in San Francisco. It's it's a debate between what's called the, the progs and the mods is sort of in the San Francisco lingo. The progressives and, you know, who and the moderates who are basically equated to uh, Barry Goldwater Republicans uh, in, in, in as, as virtue of the fact that they believe in capitalism and all this other crazy shit. So so moderates here are generally more aligned with the tech industry. Progressives are from apathetic to hostile toward the tech industry. And and there are national kind of analogies that we're seeing in, in the Democratic Party more broadly, where, um, you know, the left, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, AOC, you know, those are folks who see billionaire as bad, right? Tech as bad. Like, you know, obviously during the 2020 primary, we saw Warren even go so far as to like outlaw contributions from tech executives in a way that, People did from oil executives and or you know cigarette executives, and then you saw other candidates, Biden, Pete, choose your kind of more mainstream Democrat, who, you know, maybe they said certain things about tech bad, billionaire bad, but you know we're more conventional and raised money from these people. Now I want to take the the big story and bring it to San Francisco. Uh, the city is having this raging debate over the last ten years about how accepting of these tech people should we be. Um, in San Francisco, my favorite example, just because it's such a performative, symbolic, meaningless gesture, but I think says a lot. Last year, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors officially censured a $75 million donation from Mark Zuckerberg to a local hospital here because Mark Zuckerberg bad. You know, of course, F- Facebook bad, billionaire bad. And, you know, they thought that Zuckerberg's name shouldn't be on the hospital, which is, you know, a perfectly legitimate kind of debate about naming rights and philanthropy. But, like, it just showed. And I can tell you that incident, although it was totally irrelevant and meaningless, pissed off a lot of people in tech um, because they thought, hey, why are we attacking this guy for giving $75 million away? And you know, now we've seen tech people flock to Miami and to Austin. So there's a sort of brewing brouhaha between tech and the city. And that's what the chaser recall to me kind of is the culmination of. Not to say that the recall is totally and solely and exclusively because of these tech people being mad. Like there are 83,000 people that signed this petition. You know, those are not all VCs on Twitter. There are real people who feel this way, but there's clearly been this deterioration of, of tech and the city that is sort of synonymous with it. And that's, that's, a, that's new, you know, tech in the city maybe didn't used to have any real interaction. Like it was a very, there were two very divorced players um, you know, but there, there would be some tech people who would sound the alarm if, you know, the city was thinking about doing anything too radical. You know, the city passed all these tax breaks 
uh, five, 10 years ago to get companies like Twitter to move downtown. Now it seems like they couldn't be further apart. And, you know, they see people like Chesa and they go, Chesa, how dare we elect Chesa? And it just confirms the fact that the city doesn't get people like them. And by people like them, I mean, obviously, they're, these are rich, privileged, largely white people. But the, the chasm is real. Um, and and, and I, I wonder, you know, kind of thinking forward five, 10 years, you know, not not as San Francisco over because I think that's I think that's generally an over overstated narrative. But uh, it, it's clear that. It's going to go one of two ways. Either you could see a scenario in which tech people really want to, you know, put their thumb on the scale even more because we need to make sure the next chase it doesn't get elected. Or you could see a scenario where they say, fuck these people. What, you know, why are we donating money to hospitals? Why are we creating jobs and tax base in the city if we're just going to be absolutely wrecked by some DA who's going to pass, who's not going to enforce laws, which allows, which allows people to rob our homes? And to some extent, I think it's going to be determined by what happens in this election. Like, if if it's proven that um, the tech industry is can be successful in, in kind of enacting change, then maybe they stick around. You can also see a scenario in which this is deflating for tech people who want to make a difference. And then what? They all move to like Menlo Park again? Yeah, right. All the way to Menlo Park. But yeah, <laughs> that's that's the future we're living in. Teddy, this is such a good story. Everyone should go to Puck.News and read this. I learned a lot. Thanks, man. We'll uh, have you back on soon. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I will see you next week.